Happy day, everybody, and thanks for spending a few minutes with the 71st edition of Scoring at the Movies. We talk about sports movies from way back, and we spoil every secret we can think to spoil, if in fact they have any secrets to spoil. I'm the Madiba of Ellis Park Stadium. Love that it's Ellis Park, who has never worn green and gold, not once, never, couldn't be bothered to wear those colors together, Ryan Ellis. And here's the Springbok, i.e. Gazelle, because that's what that means, who knows you don't need a coach when your captain is Matt Damon, Chris Gregorio. Thank you, Ryan. You know I've always thought of you as a father figure anyway, so... Madiba fits right in. I did also enjoy the fact that they played these games at Ellis Park. You must have felt a flush of pride every time. So much pride. There were a lot of shots of them panning across that section of the stadium, too, where they had multiple Ellis Park banners. It was really in your face. You say you never wore green and gold. There's a guy that would have grown up right smack dab in the middle of the Bash Brothers era of Oakland. You never had any Oakland A's memorabilia? I've said before, including on Moneyball, that I'm not an A's fan, partly because I hate their uniforms. Oh. Their hats especially. Bad hats. Jonah Hill proves that in that movie. But then again, I was a Canseco fan in his heyday before we realized what a dick he is. So I guess I'm inconsistent there, but nah, green and gold doesn't work on me. It doesn't work for your complexion? Yes, this is true. <laughs> yeah, that was back when Jose Canseco was still saving household appliances from burning buildings and stuff in Springfield before he became... Oh, man. <laughs> Before he became the true steroid-riddled parody of himself that he later became. Okay, we'll get away from baseball now and talk about rugby, a sport that we know so much about. But before we do any of that, you should probably open your beer or at least sip from it and show me what you have. My standard go-to, Ryan. I think this is the third or fourth episode that I've had this bad boy in my hand. I say bad boy very loosely because it's a fruit-flavored sour <laughs> beer, so I'm trying very desperately to give any kind of masculinity to... Uh, raspberry or boysenberry flavored beer you know what i mean shut your mouth you bad boy <laughs> well, i'm just talking about sour then i can dig it <laughs> and i have some crown oh. royal and i think coke zero i don't remember what pop i poured okay well let me rattle off some bona fides and we'll talk about invictus it is undefeated that's what invictus means so we got springbok is gazelle madiba is father invictus means undefeated and it was released by Warner Brothers on December 11th, 2009. So we should have done it two years ago, but whatever. It was a bust domestically, but worldwide, it basically squeaked by. Kind of made its money back overall. I didn't look, but I'm guessing South Africa probably liked this movie. They should, because it's all about them. And the Rotten Tomatoes numbers are solid. 76% of critics said yes. 6.6 out of 10 as an average. And 75% of audiences, it was 78th at the 2009 U.S. box office. The Blind Side was in the top 10. It was number 8. Fighting, a boxing movie, Channing Tatum, I believe, 104th that year, and Whip It, Whip It Good, was 131st. But those movies, well, The Blind Side was. The other two were not nominated for Oscars. This one was, which is not surprising for a Clint Eastwood film. Margaret Freeman, best actor, playing Nelson Mandela, and Matt Damon for supporting actor, playing Francois Pinard. The guys who won that year, very good choices and better than these two guys are, even though they're good in this movie. Jeff Bridges finally won for Crazy Heart, and Christoph Waltz was so awesome. 
and Inglorious Bastards, and he won the Supporting Actor Oscar. But you've never seen this movie before this viewing. I've only ever seen it once in the theater. So we're talking going on 12 years ago, a little over 11 years ago. I won't give you my thoughts just yet, but you go ahead with your thoughts right now. This is a tough movie to talk about when you're two middle-aged white guys. And this is something I've said maybe about four or five movies that we've talked about on this podcast, particularly when they're really heavily invested in racial issues in whatever country they happen to take place in. This movie is a serious movie about serious issues in a fledgling democracy, so it kind of feels wrong to try to rip on it too much. And honestly, there isn't that much about it that I just want to dive into and tear apart. There isn't also isn't that much about it that I want to dive into and rave about. It was one of those movies where I was mm. like, yeah, okay, I see what you did there. And then at the end of it, I was like, all right, fair enough. It did a reasonably good job of portraying an interesting coincidence of events. You have this democracy in South Africa that is really just beginning as of what, 1994 when Mandela was elected, I think it was, and then the World Cup took place in 1995. Correct and correct. You have this unlikely underdog story occurring a year after Mandela's election that is hopefully a bit of a unifying event for an entire country that has been riven by, at that point, I guess, centuries of incredibly racist national policy. So I get what it's attempting to do. I just don't know if I really felt the emotional thrust of what it was trying to get me to feel by the end of it all. Honestly, I enjoyed the first half of this movie a lot more than I enjoyed the back end of it. And I think it's for exactly the reason you mentioned to me off the air before we started. And that's just because I don't really know much about rugby. And the back half of this movie is so intensely focused on that final game. And Clint Eastwood does not tell you anything about rugby. No. If you already knew, great. If you didn't, you do not learn watching this movie. I would actually be okay with that if they didn't focus so intently on it. Up until the World Cup actually began, the first game of the World Cup, I was thinking, you know what? This is kind of interesting because the movie is fixated on Mandela and how he wants to use this upcoming World Cup event to unify his country. Up until that point, they talk a lot about rugby, but they don't really fixate on the game action itself yet. Mostly practices. We see a lot of practices. Yeah. We see them working out with the kids as well at one point. They get together with some kids. That's a pretty heartwarming scene where they show the kids how to play rugby and we learn a little bit, but not very much. But the actual game action, you're right. It is stacked almost entirely at the end. Exactly. So for the first half of it, even though I knew nothing about rugby, I didn't feel lost in it. But then the last 45 minutes was almost entirely dedicated to that final game. And the last 20 to 25 is the last 10 minutes of that game. And there's no announcer, right? So it's not like they're playing it as if you're watching a sports broadcast and you have an announcer telling you what's happening. You're just watching uncommented on sport. Even that I would have been okay with. But the fatal flaw of that to me was the thing that you just mentioned. And it's that scene with the kids where it's a group of kids that don't really know rugby themselves. And so you have them explaining one or two rules, right? Like you can't pass forward. You can only pass laterally or backwards. So if you're going to go to that extent... Give me a few more details like, hey, if I kick the equivalent of a field goal, then I get this many points. Or if I get in the end right. zone, then it's this many points. So at least when we watch the players do that in the game, we're like, okay, they just got three points. Because as it was, they kept flashing to the scoreboard. And I'm like, okay, great. The All Blacks are up by three points. I have no idea what South Africa has to do to try to tie the game now. <laughs> None at all. <laughs> but that aside, like you said, Damon and Freeman are both good in their roles and it's their movie to carry particularly morgan freeman so yeah well freeman's ideal in this role he is well you could argue born to play this character partly because he was getting older at this point and mandela was not a young man when all this started in 94 well he came out of jail in 1990 so it was four years later when he was actually elected president 
and F.W. de Klerk, who was whatever he was before that, was now the state president. But de Klerk was involved, I guess. And that's fitting because we see in the movie here that Mandela doesn't want to fire the white people, including the security staff. Yep. They're a big part of this movie, and they're pretty good, all the guys that play the security staff. The ferocious Tony, and I think maybe the K is silent, I don't know, but Gorog, so it's K-G-O-R-O-G-E. He's the guy that plays Jason, who ends up being Mandela's chief security guy. And I like the touch that the white guys aren't fired, they're just part of the team. And then some of them, who knew nothing about rugby, get into it a little bit. It's not hit on the head too much. Mm-hmm. Clint Eastwood is not subtle in this movie, he's not subtle in probably any movie. Well, I like Spielberg in that way. But the white guys learning to appreciate rugby even a little bit is not the greatest touch in the history of the world, because, again, it's Eastwood. But it's decently well handled. But the relationship with Jason and the other security guy, who I guess was the clerk's guy, I'm guessing, is well enough handled. Jason, I'll just call him that because the guy's actual name is hard to pronounce, is a good actor. He was actually in Long Walk to Freedom, the Mandela movie that Idris Elba made years after this movie, where he played the younger version. So getting back to Freeman being ideal for this role, it helps that Morgan Freeman was not a young man anymore. He was around the age he should have been to play the character. And he was Mandela's preference. If somebody had said, we're going to make a movie about you and you get to choose the guy who's going to play you, Nelson, or Madiba, he would have picked Morgan Freeman. And then Mandela's people said, Freeman nailed it. There's all kinds of stories in the IMDb about how people were walking behind Freeman doing this, doing that, because they're involved in a lot of the production. And they'd say, oh, that's Madiba up there. Because Mandela was still alive at this point, but obviously that much older in 2008 and nine when they made the film. Mm-hmm. But apparently they make the mistake and think, oh, that's him. No, it's Morgan Freeman playing the character. It's not his greatest role of all time, but he's quite good in this biographical film. But as you said, because of so much rugby at the end, he is such a non-factor, and he should be. But one other big key here that apparently is based on reality is that when Freeman met with him, it must have been in the mid-2000s, maybe the later 2000s, to talk about doing this character, the World Cup came up. And maybe he knew that's why Freeman was going to meet him. But he apparently did the, oh yeah, rugby. So even then, he was obsessed with it. So maybe the movie, even though it seems like doesn't this guy have other things to do than worry about rugby all the time? Maybe Mandela really was obsessed with this sport that much because A, he liked it, and B, he knew how much it could be a uniting force. And if the movie's accurate, I don't know if it is, it was for South Africa. Yeah, exactly. And one of the interesting things about this movie to me was just that it made me curious to learn a little bit more. And I haven't yet, but I do intend to. I don't know if I'll read the book on which the movie was actually based or whether I'll just do a little bit of reading into the history of it. Because the way the movie plays it is exactly what you described, that this World Cup of rugby that happens in 1995 effectively unifies a great swath of the nation. I was thinking about this actually at the climax of the movie as well. Okay, why don't I feel a little bit more upbeat about what is supposed to be a feel-good moment, really? Maybe watching this movie in 2021 is also not the greatest point in history to watch it <laughs> because of what we've recently experienced in North America with the racial protests. It wouldn't be shocking if our country does some of the same things because we're not that different from America as much as I rip on them. But just the knowledge that we all have moments in history where we feel like we make strides going forward, but that the systemic racism of our society still lingers, right? So I think that kind of brought me down a little bit. I got to be honest. But yeah, this movie really plays rugby as a unifying force, and it does reiterate what sport can do to help people move past preconceived notions. And it might seem shallow sometimes, but like how often do you go to, and I say this not to you specifically, but just in general, how often might you go to a bar just to watch a playoff game? You find yourself just having a good time with people that you've never met before and from all kinds of backgrounds, especially in a city like Toronto. And it is one of those rare opportunities where you're there for the unified purpose, right? The same purpose, 
you don't really care about what you do, what you do, where you come from. You're just there to watch a thing. And even if it's a little bit surface level, you got to take small steps. One of the nicer touches of this movie to me was demonstrating what an incredibly unique individual Nelson Mandela was. Because if anybody in history is going to have reason to hate and hold grudges and want retribution, it's him. But he was the guy that was able to recognize that in order for his country to truly move forward, those grudges had to be let go. And even if you were the aggrieved party, you have to sometimes extend the olive branch and let bygones be bygones. Sometimes. Some things are unforgivable, but sometimes you have to take the first step towards forgiveness. Things like just watching a game together, you realize, hey, we're both human beings. We both have similar interests. And to your earlier point about the security guards, I thought that was a nice touch because as the country sort of warms to this Springbok team, you see that played out in small by this four white and four black security guards that have come together. And over time, they become a little bit friendlier and mostly over rugby. Well, it's good that they weren't entirely friends, but they were friendlier. They had taken steps. That's true. Also, the nice touch with the kid at the end, not subtle, but pretty well done still. He's shunned by the cabbies, the black kid outside, as they're listening to the game on the radio. And every time we cut back, he's closer and closer and more accepted <laughs> until at the end, they're lifting him up in a big hug. So if you're going to be on the nose and play the notes like Eastwood's doing in this film, that's the way to do that kind of thing, because it's nice to accept a kid if nothing else. But as for the forgiveness thing and forgiving the unforgivable, that plays in my nutshell. So here we go. Invictus in a nutshell. White South Africans were lucky Mandela liked rugby and not revenge because they were already outnumbered long before. I remember Robin Williams did a joke about this when it came to apartheid before Mandela was released. He did this in the earlier mid-80s. And something like, does the name Custer ring a bell to you, <laughs> Mr. Bopa? The whites were vastly, probably still are, outnumbered by black people in South Africa. So for them to act like, well, we got your number. They're lucky that the black people, but especially the guy who became president, didn't say, oh, I'm coming for a payback. If Quentin Tarantino was directing this movie, there would have been a payback. <laughs> Actually, you know what? Nelson Mandela, but bent on revenge? I think there might be something there. <laughs> At least in a Tarantino-esque movie. I don't think this movie is too far off of the way that Mandela really was. He was the first president of South Africa. That's not what they called it before, I guess, or what they called the job before. And he only did it for about five years, 94 to 99. And they shot this movie, by the way, as you could probably tell, in South Africa, Cape Town, Johannesburg. And they actually went to Robben Island and into Mandela's actual cell. When you see Matt Damon standing there and putting his arms out, I was up to say, this is all the space this guy had. Yeah. I'm glad he didn't say that, by the way. I'm surprised that Eastwood didn't have him say, this is all the space he had. But he didn't do that. <laughs> that is actually Nelson Mandela's cell. I'm impressed he had a view. Not that it was much of a view. It was just of the prison yard, but still. So that's where he actually lived. And they shot the movie, it seems, entirely in South Africa. So Eastwood's budget, I guess, must have gone, at least in some part, to just having these people be on the road. For Although he always shoots movies so fast. We talked about it probably on Million Dollar Baby. Freeman was in that. Freeman won his Oscar for that movie. Here's another sports movie for Clint Eastwood. Who knew that Morgan Freeman and Clint Eastwood would do two sports movies together that we would cover in about, <laughs> I don't know, a year and a half or something. But this movie does have that authenticity of actually being in South Africa, casting a lot of South Africans. They probably should have got somebody other than Matt Damon to play a South African, but then you get a star like that, you get more of a budget. That's the way Hollywood works. Maybe Eastwood wanted to work with Matt Damon. But as they point out in the film, and there's a story about this online where Matt Damon met the real Pinar, who is huge. Damon is not very big to begin with. He can be muscular like he was in the Bourne films, although I think Jason Bourne, the newer one, he was way more muscular. But anyway, it's not like he's tiny, but he's not that big. I was thinking, and you didn't want to use this guy, I guess, because he's not as good an actor, but Dolph Lundgren. 
Damon looks a little like Francois Pinard, but Dolph Lundgren, I think, is a spitting image, and he's got the size. I think they actually, tongue-in-cheek, had a moment at Damon's expense about that, right? Because when he goes to visit Mandela for the first time at Mandela's request, he's escorted in by a couple members of the security team. And then when those security guys go back to their shared office space, the other members of the team ask him, so you met Francois? What was he like? And the guy's response was, he's not as big as you would expect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or something was smaller yep. than you'd think. So I think that was a little bit of a nod towards him. But you're right. They obviously cast Damon for his acting jobs, not for his physical resemblance as size goes. Although he was legitimately beefy in the way that Tom Hardy in Dark Knight Rises, because he's also 5'10 or something. He's not a big guy, but he looks just giant because he's got the big back and shoulders and traps. And I think Damon went the same route for this because he looks like a strong dude. He's just not very big. I did like your mention about that scene where they visit, I guess that was Robin Island, right? Because Mandela went to two prisons over the course of his incarceration. Robin Island was his 18 years of the 27. But that was a gut-wrenching moment when he is in the cell and he just reaches side to side and he can touch both walls with arms outstretched without even trying. And like you said, Damon's not a big guy. The one thing I wish they hadn't done, I had no problem with him looking out in the yard and seeing Mandela breaking rocks, essentially. That was fine. Mm And I liked the voiceover of him reading Invictus, of Morgan Freeman reading the poem Invictus, because, of course, that's what he gave to Pinar earlier to say, this got me through a lot of troubled times. I hope it helps you in the upcoming tournament. But I really wish they hadn't cut to Damon turning to his side and seeing the ghost of Nelson Mandela sitting in the corner reading the poem to himself. That felt like the Clint Eastwood sledgehammer effect. But subtlety doesn't always serve you too well in movies where you're really trying to make sure that the emotional point is being made, right? Well, Clint Eastwood makes movies for people that are in his demographic, I guess. Old white guys? Yeah, probably always did because the Westerns he made were mostly for older people, I would guess. Maybe Westerns were liked by everybody when he was making them in the 60s and 70s. But at this point, Westerns are for older people. Anyway, the point is that Eastwood knows his demographic. He was nearly 80 when they made this movie, and he's made eight movies since. He's pretty much made one movie a year since this, and he's going on, what is it going to be, 91 this year, I think in December, whenever his birthday is. This guy never stops working. Didn't he retire after The Mule? No, he's still making more movies. I hope he makes a Dirty Harry sequel at the age of like 92. (sighs) Go ahead, punk. (laughs) So he made The Mule which was, I think, successful. Sully definitely was successful. That was a few years before that. American Sniper in 2014 was the biggest hit of the year in our comic book era, which is shocking. But Richard Jewell, which isn't really a sports movie. I guess we could do it. It's about the Olympics in 1996. He did that, I guess it's two years ago now. And then he's got a movie that says here, post-production, Cry Macho. (laughs) The guy doesn't stop working. And in this movie especially, maybe more than any other I can remember, uses his family. His son, Scott, plays Joel Stransky. He's the good-looking kid who scores all of the Springboks' points in the finals. That's based on reality. Stransky scored all the points. Doesn't have very much dialogue, if any. I was looking for him through the whole film and really only noticed him towards the end because I forgot what he looked like. He's made his own career. Obviously, his name has helped all these years, but he's done the Fast and the Furious movies, and he did the Pacific Rim sequel. He's making his own way. Good-looking kid doesn't hurt. Also, his daughter is involved in this movie. She wrote lyrics for a song in this, so Dina Eastwood. And then his son, Kyle, did the score for this movie and has done the scores for other movies, too. But if you look online at the pictures of Dina, and we know what Scott Eastwood looks like now, he's made a lot of movies. 
Clint has pretty good genes. He does. This movie may not be scorable. In fact, this movie is not scorable. I wouldn't say at all because parables are rarely sexy. But his kids just looking online. Yeah, not bad. <laughs> one of the movies that I pitch that we do from time to time, because it's one of my favorites from when I was younger, is Pool Hall Junkies. I think we haven't done it because we haven't been able to find it anywhere. His daughter has a starring role in that movie. Oh, I don't okay. think it's Dina. I think he has another daughter. Allison. Allison Eastwood. Right. She was in Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, I believe, in the late 90s. And he's got a little daughter. Well, she was little at the time. In True Crime, that was 1999. Right. And the girl who plays his, I think it's his daughter in the movie, is his actual daughter. And she's two or three or four years old or something like that. So now she's obviously about mid-20s. He must have, I don't know, six, eight, 20 kids. <laughs> <laughs> so not only good-looking genes, but apparently potent genes. You go, Clint. Yes. I'm kind of disappointed. I don't, I don't know if disappoint's the right word, actually, but you mentioned the soundtrack when you were talking about Dina. There were times in this movie where I thought the soundtrack was kind of nice and subtle with African themed background music, but that wasn't in your face, right? It was just playing in the background, just emphasizing the culture of the area. But then, just sledgehammer to the face moment, and I don't remember the exact context, but it was when Mandela was touching down in a helicopter to visit, I think, the rugby team at their practice. And the lyrics of the song reminded me so much of Rocky IV, because we've talked about the soundtrack to Rocky IV quite a bit, <laughs> and Burning Heart. I love that song. I think it's super corny and fun, but I know you think the lyrics are so on the nose. Two worlds collide, rival nations. It was like that, and it was so loud, too. All of a sudden, the music gets super loud over top of this shot. I will drag the country out of racism myself, and I'll never fail, or something. To paraphrase the lyrics is basically what I say. I'm you were very subtle, very subtle, sledgehammer to the face, back to subtle again. <laughs> okay. This is not a sexy movie, but I laughed once, and that was when Pinar's wife comes to visit him just prior to the first game of the World Cup. And she's like, come on, Francois, it's been weeks. Let's do this. Right. And he's like, no, I can't. I got to be angry for the game, <laughs> and it's working. Okay, that was good. <laughs> I have recently read that that's not true. Like so many old wives tales, Raging Bull, a movie you don't like, but that's one of the more well-known scenes in that movie when he refuses to sleep with his wife. In fact, pours ice water down his pants to cool himself off, if you will, when he gets all worked up by her because he thinks he needs to not do it to be better in a boxing match. Whatever works for you, I guess, is the idea, right? It's like luck. People that will do or not do certain things because they think it's bad luck or good luck. But that's, <laughs> luck. there's no biological stuff, especially when you're already in great shape like Jake LaMotta was for his fights. Matt Damon's character here, Francois Pinar, another real person, as it turns out. Having sex is not going to ruin that for you. And we talked about the scorability factor. This is not a scorable movie. One of the people I just mentioned, Dean Eastwood, is not even on screen. Scott Eastwood is. But Damon, for the ladies... And Scott for the ladies as well, for that matter. And Damon's wife, also lovely lady. You do get a lot of shots of some shirtless rugby beefcakes in this movie. So if that's your scene, then you got a little bit of eye candy. But again, the context of the movie kills any vibes. But no sex before sporting events, I think that's been soundly disproven. But I always thought that that was don't drain your body because it'll reduce your energy if you had sex just before a sporting event. So when he started the scene, he's like, no, I can't. I was like, oh, come on, man. We know that's not true. But then he led into the, I have to be angry. <laughs> Sexual frustration is definitely a thing. That I can get behind. <laughs> yeah, That was a funny moment. Yeah, it's not a funny movie, but that was pretty good. We've talked a lot about the on the nose stuff. I'm going to cut to the ending for one key line here, which is nice. It's a very nice moment. But again, I'll say it's the... <clears throat> on the keyboard that Eastwood's doing when Mandela says to him, thank you for what you've done for our country. 
And right back, Francois says, thank you for what you have done for our country. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a good sentiment. Obviously, the Francois they're portraying, whether he's like that in reality, we don't know, believe that at that point. He believed that before. He didn't need the rugby match to convince him. He was convinced before. He's like Cruz and A Few Good Men, where his arc is over before the big scene, the You Can't Handle the Truth scene. Cruz's arc is already done because he put Nicholson on the stand. Well, same with this. Francois was convinced even before he went to the prison cell, you could argue. This is Anthony Peckham's screenplay, by the way. We didn't say his name, the writer. He also wrote the same year as this, Sherlock Holmes, which was a monster hit, way bigger than this was. And he based on John Carlin's 2008 book. So pretty fast turnaround from writing the book about this whole event to making the movie the next year. I'm sure you could argue that Peckham wrote a by-the-numbers type of script for these inspirational sports movies about real people. We've seen so many movies done this way. Disney does it well, but they're not that much more subtle than this movie is. I wouldn't say the acting is top-notch. Freeman's the best thing in the movie. Damon's fine. It's not Damon's best work, even though he's nominated for an Oscar for it. I really liked, actually, I don't know how you say this name either, but Adjoa, A-D-J-O-A, and then her last name is Ando, A-N-D-O-H. I guess it's Adjoa Ando. She's Medela's assistant. She's the one that rolls her R's so well, which I can never do. And she hasn't made a lot of stuff in her career, only 12 movies. But if you like Bridgerton, which I've not watched, but I know it's pretty big on Netflix right now, she's in that. And I think she's pretty solid as his assistant. She's got quite a bit of screen time. But you said it before, the politics stuff is mostly in the first half, the better part of the movie. And then in the second half, she might be there, but she really has nothing to do at all. Not that Mandela, Freeman, has that much to do in the last 30 minutes either, because now it's time to play rugby. But I think she's pretty solid in the movie. And just like Marguerite Whitley, who plays Damon's wife, and her screen time is pretty good too. My favorite characters in the movie were just the security group, all of the guys that play that group as a whole. I thought they did the best job. They were giving a lot of opportunity to show that too, because the movie focuses on their evolving relationships as a microcosm of Africa's slow cohesion, I guess. The actress whose name I'll never get right, but who plays Nelson Mandela's assistant is probably the next best thing in my mind, even ahead of Freeman and Damon in this. I found Pinar's arc or lack thereof interesting because I wasn't sure, I mean, I'm sure it's true to reality that he was an accepting guy and maybe as a result of being a little bit more traveled, I would imagine, as part of the national rugby team for South Africa. He's probably been all over, at least the Asian Pacific area of the world. But the fact that his father is just so explicitly racist right out of the gate, and you see his father does have that by the numbers look, I start out slamming visible minorities. They're going to take all our jobs and force us into the sea and all that kind of stuff. And then by the end of it, he's happily giving his black housekeeper a ticket to go with them to the game and everybody's one big happy family, right? So it's like a very Disney-esque kind of evolution of a family. That was a little bit of a missing piece, maybe just understanding a little bit more about Francois himself as the man, because we just get him as the captain and he's just a good guy right from the get-go. He's got his black African teammate that everybody loves. He's all about the new African flag and new African anthems right out of the gate. That could be true, but at least explain to us why you are this upstanding moral guy, right? You know who he reminds me of, actually? I've been criticizing this a lot lately, especially in some of the podcasts I do with Bev. It's the woke movement. Yeah. Meaning the people that act like, well, if I was back in slave times, I wouldn't have had slaves. I would have been different. No, you wouldn't have. You're a liar. You wouldn't have been. Okay, a group of the 10 woke people that know everything, maybe one of them would have been the different person. The other nine would have been the same as the rest of us. And that's the way South Africa was. It wasn't as bad as slavery, but they had had apartheid for a long time. It was not that far off of slavery. And like I said before, they were so vastly outnumbered too. I think four to one. They're lucky the black people didn't want to kill them. So 
the fact that Francois is so woke, we'll use the word, in the mid-90s, does seem unrealistic. Maybe he's well-traveled. That could be the one explanation for it. He's the leader of the team, like I joked in the beginning. I don't think we ever have the coach speak a word in this whole film. No. If we do, I've forgotten. <laughs> Damon is the coach of this team, basically, even though he's not literally the coach of this team. And he doesn't really have an arc. He plays a pretty good character, but he's already getting it. And I'm a little bit surprised that Eastwood didn't have him be the guy that isn't racist exactly, but isn't necessarily the greatest dude in the world. But he is the greatest dude in the world when the movie starts. And the Chester guy on this team, this all-white team, in this basically all-white sport, that guy would not be so well accepted. He seems like he's a key part of the team. Look at the way the black kids just crowd around him when they are showing the kids how to play rugby. Also a touch, the very first shot of the film is we see the white man playing rugby and the black kids in the background playing soccer. The contrast there. People all over the world like soccer. Rugby's a little bit more of a specialized sport. I guess Eastwood got into rugby during this movie, didn't really know much about it, and got into it more as he was shooting the whole film. But that's the one real weakness with Damon's character. It's not like it's a great performance or a bad performance. It's somewhere in the middle. It's fine. And it's not his fault. That's the way that Peckham wrote it and Eastwood shot it. But his arc is flat. His arc isn't an arc. It's a line. Going to the cell on Robin Island is a moment, too. You mentioned the criticisms of that. If he had just stood there and put his arms out and then looked around and there's nothing else to it, maybe not even show Freeman out there, just have him reach his arms out. That would have been a powerful come to Jesus type of moment where maybe everything clicks for Francois and he becomes that truly accepting guy that we want him to be. But again, I'm assuming also that this is fairly true to the personalities of the people involved. So maybe Francois was just this guy. I just would have liked to understand more why He's so much more accepting than most white African, South Africans at this time. And that Chester guy, he was maybe one of the most underplayed characters in this movie for the reasons you just said. He's beloved by all of the poor children because he is the one black player on this team. And I think we are meant to understand that rugby in South Africa was the purview of the white class during the apartheid era, which is why every non-white resident of the country did not like the sport to the point where they tried to give a jersey, a game jersey, to a young black African kid, and he turns it down because he'll get beat up if he wears it. Then how did this Chester guy go through to achieve this level of success in a sport that seems to be not something for him in this era of South Africa, right? So I assume that Chester was a real guy, beloved by his team, and probably beloved by a lot of the young black children of South Africa in this time, but I would have liked to have understood why. And the fact that Clint Eastwood didn't know anything about the sport and learned it during the filming of this movie and then wouldn't tell us about it. <laughs> Come on, man. A little help, please. The one last nitpick I had about this thing was the match against the All Blacks. Mm-hmm. That was way too drawn out for me. The match itself was way too long, too slow-mo. Every play, there would be a cutaway to like two or three slow-mo reaction shots from somewhere in South Africa. You can do that once or twice, but by the eighth, ninth, tenth time they're doing that in one sequence of events, okay, I get mm-hmm. it. The country is deeply invested. I get it. But the All Blacks at the beginning of the game, of course, do their famous haka dance, right? The Maori battle dance, I think is what it originally was. I don't know if you've ever seen the real All Blacks do that, or even any group of New Zealanders, Maori or otherwise, that do that. In Whale Rider, really good movie from earlier in the same decade as this movie's made, Whale Rider is a lovely film if you've ever seen that before. Not a sports film, but I recommend it anyway. It's set in New Zealand. It's all about New Zealanders. Every character 
maybe not all the actors are New Zealanders, but every character is supposed to be. And they do stuff like that in that movie. I'd never seen that before, and it was really cool. It's supposed to be intimidating, a lot of the tongue action and then that getting in your face type deal. Yeah, so I have seen it before in movies, but never in reality, so no. It's worth looking up, even see recordings of it, because when it's done well, and the All Blacks actually do it very well in reality, you can understand how watching your opponents psych themselves up and psych you out in the process, it truly is intimidating. We get the rundown of their scores in the tournament. They're breaking scoring records against, I think it was Japan or something. They're trouncing England, who had previously trounced South Africa themselves. So the South Africans are like, holy crap, if we got beaten by these guys and those guys just got beaten even worse by New Zealand, what are we in for? And it all culminates with this famous haka dance. I felt like they didn't really do it justice in its intensity, right? It was like watching it at a thousand feet. You can see them doing the dance, but you don't get the real experience of being there at ground level and watching it in your face, which I think really would have hammered home what these South African Springboks were up against. Well, the New Zealand team obviously isn't supposed to be black people per se. They have some who are not white, at least, but they have their share of white people as they would in New Zealand. But I just find it curious that, and it's because of their jerseys, I'm guessing, but they are called the All Blacks, considering what this movie is all about. The subtext or the text of this movie being about black versus white and black and white learning to live together. If only we could do that over in this part of the world, especially in America. But there's a few reasons why in reality that South Africa won the match. They probably shouldn't have even been close because in every sports movie, they've got to be the underdogs. Is there ever a sports movie where the team that we like are the overdogs? <laughs> no, I don't think there ever is. Very the few overdogs. examples. But the Springboks now in reality, here's what I was reading. They deserve to win. That's true. But the All Blacks kicker, as it's shown in this movie at least, had a terrible day with his drop goals. I thought they were called punts. I didn't look up much. I meant to look up more about rugby. I'm sorry, fans. I let you down. I should have learned a little bit more. But they're called drop goals when you just step back and you basically are punting like you see in football over here in North America. He missed at least a few kicks that we see portrayed in the film. And they lost by three. So if he makes even one of those, I think, you got to tie a game. If he makes both of those, they still win the game. And also, apparently in reality... They don't portray this at all in the film, but the All Blacks were vomiting from food poisoning. They were taking their turns doing that. Really? And there's speculation is, were they sabotaged? So their team wasn't at full strength, and it's something they couldn't control. People get hurt. People aren't well. It might have just been coincidence. But they're also in South Africa, so you can't say that it was New Zealand food that made them sick, because they would probably have been eating South African food. That makes a little bit of sense, because that is the other aspect of this movie that they don't really make any effort to explain. And I guess it's understandable. They read this litany of scores that the New Zealand squad had posted going into the finals, 45 to 9, 145 to 17. They're trouncing everybody. So when the final game is just 9-6, and I think it was actually in overtime. It was. It was 15-12, though. 15-12. 15-12? Okay. Yeah, it's because they played the extra 10 minutes. I just assumed that the South African side put up such a great defensive effort that they were able to contain the All Blacks, but apparently there was more to it. But for all of my lack of understanding of what was actually going on scene to scene while watching the game itself, I'm at a bit of a loss as to why this sport isn't more popular in North America, at least. I'm not a huge football guy, and obviously we're recording this on Super Bowl Sunday instead of watching the Super Bowl, so you can tell neither one of us are big football fans. But it strikes me that rugby is football, but just more visceral, because you're really getting in there it's not necessarily as fast paced because you're not covered in body armor head to toe, but you're just cheek to jowl with your opponent, just digging around in the mud. Aspects of it, like you said, drop kick, drop goal, drop goal. 
is kind of a cool thing, right? In the flow of the play, they're kicking field goals. It's not like a stoppage in play and you place kick, which they also did that. So I assume that's a separate play. But yeah, you've got all these cool variations on what you see in football, but it's just more visceral. The guys are all just like nicked head to toe. They've got small cuts and bleeding all over the place. You don't have quite the spectacular one-off, two-off plays in the course of a game because you can't just run full bore into somebody else. If you're not protected, if you're not just like a walking tank, does that stop you from doing some of the insane things that cause incredible head trauma? That might be an explanation because it's always been weird to me. I don't really have much experience with rugby. I knew a guy who played it. He was smaller than me height-wise, but was tough and strong, way more than I was. He was also a little messed up. Maybe there's a connection there. I don't know. But it's weird to me that they don't wear pads or helmets in a sport like this. Yeah, they're not going as fast as football players do or as fast as hockey players even do. I guess hockey players are even faster being on skates. But there's a lot of contact. They show when the ball does get loose and somebody's actually running it. You can get hammered no different than if you're a wide receiver in football by a linebacker or by a cornerback. And those guys do have protection when that happens. Obviously, football players aren't getting badly hurt every single play. You just said it. Right at this very moment, there's a football game where somebody probably got hammered right then. (laughs) I'm going to guess somebody got annihilated, but at least they are protected with padding. And it is strange to me in this sport. Just as you clearly snapped your fingers, I got a sports center update. Tom Brady just got hammered. (laughs) How is that guy still playing? That's incredible that he's at 43 in another Super Bowl. Yeah, rugby is something I respect without knowing anything about it. I had more credibility talking about rock climbing and chess in December, the two movies we did then, because... I've played chess a little bit, and I guess, well, you've rock climbed, but rugby, never done it at all. Eastwood doesn't help us at all. But this movie isn't about sports anyway. It's just a clothesline for politics. Except at the end, the movie is so much about the sport. It's a weird push-pull. It almost could have been more like his Richard Jewell, the movie that he shot a couple years ago. It's not a bad movie, but as I recall, I don't think you see one single Olympic event for even one second. It's entirely about the build-up to that explosion going off, and then Richard Jewell's story at that moment, and then the next, whatever it is, weeks or months playing out. Paul Walter Hauser, who we both like so much in Itania, is Richard Jewell. So there's a movie that's about a sporting event, the most major sporting event every other year there is, and of course every fourth year when it comes to the Summer Olympics. But Eastwood doesn't dwell on the sports at all. And then this one, I guess we're saying maybe because we don't really like or know anything about the sport, there's too much of it. You're right, it could have been cut down quite a bit because when we're seeing so much of the rugby and don't understand it, just show me where it's going. Okay, fine, they won in the end and it's good. And obviously the kids outside with the cabbies are proving to me, the security guards, we won. That's great. But as an audience member, I must feel like Jason. I didn't really know what was happening until they told me what had happened periodically it cuts to the pairs of security guards and one guy will turn to the other. What does that mean? It means we won. Oh, okay. Yay. Great. That was cute. That was a funny moment. Yeah. No, that was a good moment, but I felt like that guy felt like what happened. Oh, they won. Okay, great. <laughs> this is the rare example to me of these movies that we've done for the podcast where maybe there was actually too much of the sport here. Maybe I would have felt differently if I was a rugby aficionado. I don't know. Or even if there was an announcer explaining to me what needed to happen they're scrumming they're scrumming they're still scrumming (laughs) he holds it holds it holds it holds it (laughs) aside from not really understanding the game action at least i thought the way they shot the action itself i came away feeling like it was a visceral and intense experience on the field so they succeeded at that one weird touch though before the climax the film before the game is the flyover with that airplane that was real But the security guards knew about it. In the movie, they built it up that especially Jason doesn't know what's about to happen because you wonder, is this 9-11 all over again? Well, that was before 9-11, but is it a terrorist attack? 
And in the movie, they make it seem like, oh, that's what's about to happen. Instead, it's just this inspirational message. And the body of the plane says something like, go box or something, go spring box. And everyone erupts. That apparently all happened, except that it was planned. I still think it's a bad idea to do something like that, to get that low and close to the stadium. Because he may be a great pilot, but what if he does mess up <laughs> and kills thousands of people? So it's a weird touch, but I guess they're basing it on reality. So, okay, fine. I didn't know that was real. I thought that was just a little bit of movie magic, but sure, I'll go for it. Why not? It did seem unrealistic that the president's security team would have been unaware that this was planned. And as you said, I guess in reality, they did, though, and for dramatic effect, you got the what kind of thing out of this, right? <laughs> Watching this in 2021 is a bit of a weird headspace to watch these kinds of... That's true. Because this movie is saying that we can find common ground, we can fix our racial differences... Because we want to, because we're decent people, because we can bond over sports in this example. It's not to be sports, but in this example, that's what it is. Which I do agree with, to at least an extent. I get the message, and I'm for it. It's just hard to sit down and watch it and get the full emotional impact. That's what I'm saying, is that we aren't getting that over here. Americans more so than us, but we're not that much different, like I said about 20 minutes ago. I love the message. I wish it was true. This movie didn't make me cry, but I definitely felt a little hollow watching some of those scenes because I credit Eastwood and Freeman and everybody for doing them. The scenes with Pinar and Mandela meeting and having common ground is lovely, but all we're seeing is our neighbors to the South getting further and further ripped apart. And it isn't all about race, but we are learning more and more that it's so much about race. I don't know that we're learning anything as a species. And this movie didn't succeed, and maybe that's why. A lot of people in America didn't want to see... Even though Eastwood had made a lot of hits, Gran Torino, the movie he made the year before this, was, as I recall, a pretty big hit. He's made a lot of good movies. He's made a lot of big hits. And yet people didn't go out to see this one, especially in America. And maybe it's because we're not going to connect because I don't want to. And if we didn't think that before, we should be thinking that now. So we're bringing a negative spin to this movie that doesn't have it. This movie is all optimism. But in reality, it's hard to be optimistic about this exact topic. And we are, by the way, in Black History Month. You and I didn't pick this movie for that reason. But this is still Black History Month here in February. That is true. I give this movie a seven, though, because even though I could criticize it all day long, I like what it's trying to do. Freeman's quite good. Damon's fine, if not a little bit better than fine anyway. The supporting players are good. The guy who plays Jason, love that intensity. He's in Hotel Rwanda, by the way. That's another movie. It's about rough race relations. Well, it's all black people, but still, that's a hard movie to watch, but a very good one. So I would give it a gentle seven. What about you? I think so. If I had watched this when it came out, I probably would have been right on it i would have really dug in especially in the theater because i think maybe a little bit more of the intensity of the sporting event watching it in the theater if they had done a little bit more explaining of just one or two small things like a little bit more explanation about where chester comes from maybe and a little bit more info even within the context of that scene with the kids just to give me a few bits of information about the scoring of rugby or something so i could get into the end sequence a little bit more this is a movie I could totally see myself saying, yeah, I loved it, eight and a half, nine out of 10, something like that, just with a few tweaks or a little bit different headspace. So I think seven, there's nobody look at this movie and be like, oh, they put in a bad performance or they mailed it in. Yeah, a movie you have to respect, especially for the effort that Eastwood and his team are putting in here. And a family-made film, as we said, so many of his own kids are involved in this and they all do. Well, the score may not be the greatest thing. <laughs> all, but... And it's funny because Eastwood's a jazz fan. You think of jazz as, well, I guess jazz isn't the most gentle thing or subtle thing, is it? But we did Invincible two weeks ago, leading up to the Super Bowl. We record this on Super Bowl Sunday. Invictus here in February, Black History Month. 
Clint Eastwood's a jazz fan? Yes. Oh, you didn't know that? Didn't he's know. written his own scores a lot of the time, too. A lot of the movies he's done. I didn't know Kyle had ever worked with them at all until I saw his credit for this movie, and then I looked it up, and he worked on Gran Torino, uh, and I think two or three other of his father's movies. So maybe then he's thinking that rugby is about the rules you don't explain. <laughs> Nicely done. Good ending. Okay, well then... That is Invictus. In two weeks, no more INVI films. We'll do something we haven't done in quite a spell. We'll talk about wrestling. It's Florence Pugh in Fighting With My Family, a movie that we are both going to see on Crave, on demand. I talked about this movie last year when Bev and I did Midsummer. that I think that the two movies she did that year, no, three she did that year, and she's a really good young actress, but I think this was my favorite of her three performances it surprised me with how much I like this movie. It's based on, again, a true story. So we have another biographical film. This is three in a row, or maybe it's more than three, but Invincible, Invictus, now Fighting With My Family. And you haven't seen this one either, so it'd be your first yeah. time seeing this movie. Another first-timer for you. A lot of virgin experiences for me. I was wondering how Fighting With Family and Midsommar blend together somehow, but... I see. It's the same actress. I didn't know that. She's that good. And she also did Little Women that same year where she got nominated for the Oscar. Bev and I didn't love her in that movie. We think she's miscast for one thing, at least in the younger version of that character, Amy March. But that's a talented woman that can do all three of those movies in the same year. Not only have I not seen either of those movies, I don't think I've seen her in anything. Okay. Your debut with her then. Okay. Well, I am on Twitter. I am at MovieFiend51. Chris is at Scoring at Movies. You can find us wherever you get fine podcasts or bad podcasts, or mid-range podcasts. Hopefully ours is one of those. Mid-range? Mid-range. We'll take mid-range. That's fine. It's good enough. Just like this movie. Not bad. <laughs> not great. Not terrible. Not bad. Pretty, pretty, pretty good. <laughs> so take her easy, Madiba. The past is the past. <laughs>